This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning. If, uh, if you're new here, let me welcome you. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's great to have you with us uh, this morning. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And today we're going to finish chapter 6 together. So if you turn to verse 19, chapter 6, verse 19, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can turn to page 473. You'll be able to track along with us, uh, which I I think will be helpful. Also, if you have any questions about the text or something related to this passage, uh, there's a number up here. You can text in a question, and then uh, we do our best to answer those questions uh, on a podcast that we do weekly called Grace Church Conversations. We'll uh, answer those, and then uh, that podcast comes out. We talk about other stuff too, but that podcast comes out on Wednesdays, and you can uh, see more about that from the church website. So today we are moving uh, to the second half of chapter 6. We're going to do a bigger section. We're going to cover the whole second half of the chapter. Chapters 1 through verses 1 through 18 were about hypocrisy, and Jesus was addressing religious hypocrisy, and now we're moving to a section where Jesus is addressing worry. And it's easy to look at those and goes, those sound like two very uh, unrelated topics. Is Jesus just sort of talking about random things? Well, there's nothing random about God and his purposes. Jesus is talking about something that really does flow because in both situations, the problem with uh, the hypocrite and the worrier is self-focus. In hypocrisy, the kind of religious hypocrisy he was talking about. He, he said that people are doing religious acts and they're thinking about what do others think about me? What do you think about me? Do you respect me? Do you see that I'm godly? Are you honoring me? Those kinds of things. Self-focus. In the passage on worry, we're going to see that he's talking about people feeling like they must provide for themselves. It's the sense that I must do and produce that everything relies upon me. That is the source of the worry that he is speaking about. In both the hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy, and worry, in in both cases, the individual is not gripped by the beauty, by the truth, by the reality that, that I have a heavenly Father that loves me and sees me. The hypocrite says, do others see me? And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray to your Father in secret who sees. The whole point is, Do your religious activities before God himself and not before people. In worry, he will say the same thing. God knows your needs. He knows your needs before you even bring them up. He sees. So both cases, in both cases, Jesus emphasizes the truth that God is our father to secure us and guard us from both hypocrisy and, as we'll see today, worry. So we're going to read a pretty big passage here, Matthew 6. Verses 19 through 34. This is God's holy word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God who so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we wear? What shall we drink? Or or what shall we eat? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I'm going to talk a little bit about 19 through 24 to start with, and then I'm going to spend most of my time on 25 through 34. I was going to teach these in two separate passages, but I believe they really relate together, so I made it into one sermon because I think one sets us up for the other. In the first section, Jesus is showing um, how having the wrong treasure means serving the wrong master. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, verse 19, and where thieves break in and steal. And when he uses this word treasure, what he's talking about is what are the things that we value? What are the things that we prize? What are the things that we cherish? And he's saying, don't cherish, don't set your heart on passing things. If you, if you tie your security to your possessions, or if you tie your identity to what you own, you are tying yourself and setting yourself up for loss because your possessions will not last. If you put your hope in stuff, your stuff is fading away. That's why he says there's kind of two ways it fades away. One is passive. He says where moth and rust destroy, that means over aging, uh, over the process of aging, your stuff loses its value. Or where thieves break in and steal, that's sort of a active where your stuff disappears because someone took it. My wife and I had the profound privilege and joy of moving this week. And uh, we're st- it dra- trails on. We're still involved in it a little bit. It was a short move, like a few houses down. On the, we're on the same block we were. Uh, but in moving, what typically happens if you've moved much is you kind of go through your stuff and you look at, well, how long have we had this and do we need it? And my wife and I are a little bit uh, 
a little bit different. Like, I want to throw out everything. Okay, this clothes, that looks good. We, let's just, you know, I don't want to take, I don't want to haul a bunch of old junk over to the new place. But um, my wife has, she like has a heart. And so she cares about memories and has some sentimentality to her. Not, she's not overly sentimental, but appropriately sentimental. So, and I'm like, I got issues. So anyway, I just want to get rid of everything. So uh, anyway, we're looking through stuff. And so I was just thinking about this one possession. It's a TV that we bought maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I can't remember when we got it. The TV is in my vehicle in the parking lot right now because we just got rid of it. We don't ever use it. It sat in our bedroom for the house we lived in almost for three years and was almost never turned on. Uh, it, after year five, it started getting an increasing black dot that just started spreading like leprosy on the screen. And uh, so we just never used it. And so I was looking at this thing, hauling, I'm, going, I'm not hauling this thing to our next house. Talk about where, where moth and rust destroy. That TV, it is in the back of my car, and I am hoping that someone, I left my car unlocked, I'm hoping that someone steals it during the service because I don't want to have to go through however you get rid of a TV. If you want it, I'll be down here at the end. I will tell you where my car is. You can go take it, or you can just go find it. It's, it's, a, it's a red expedition out in the parking lot. Just go get the TV. Now, here's the thing about that. I remember when I bought that TV 10 or 12 years ago. I researched. I searched for weeks to get the best price. We were going to get this new TV. It was the first one we had that was like called the flat screens, about like that. Now they're about like that. But, man, this was going to be great. Uh, You know, it was going to be amazing to get this. I searched. I researched. Finally, I went down on New Year's Day, drove about 30 minutes to the best deal in North America for this particular model. Listen to this. I spent more on tolls than that TV is worth today. (laughs) It meant so much, and now it means nothing. And I want you to know, all the stuff you own, all the stuff you're laboring for that's shiny and new and amazing, when you die, that is not going to matter at all. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't hook your heart to stuff that's passing away. Hook your heart to what is enduring, to to the Lord, to set your treasures in heaven. What's enduring? God is enduring, and people are enduring, and the various callings that God has given us to serve him and to serve others, those are enduring. And so invest there is what he is saying. Prize what is eternal, serving God and serving others, things that last. Hook your heart to that. It's fine to have a TV or whatever other possession, but don't make that what you are about is what he is saying. We can attach our heart to what is passing or what is lasting. Next, he speaks about our vision. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, verse 22. And he's basically saying, you need a spiritual vision because your vision of life affects your whole life. So if you have a vision for what's lasting and eternal, then you will live your life in a certain way. If you have a vision for accumulating stuff and things so that you feel secure and you draw your identity in what you can possess, that will affect everything. You can live for the kingdom, and that will affect all of your decisions. It will affect your motives. Oftentimes, you're doing the same thing. But the motive behind why we do what we do, that's the big difference. So he's saying, what's your vision? And then he says, you can't serve God and money. 
You cannot serve God in money. You can't serve two masters, verse 24. You can't treasure your possessions and God at the same time. You can't treasure your accomplishments and your reputation and your security and your comfort. You cannot treasure those in God simultaneously. You must choose your God. Sometimes this is translated mammon. You cannot serve God in mammon. Mammon's another way for money, but another word for money. But mammon literally means trusted thing or the thing in which one trusts. You cannot serve God and the trusted thing, the precious, the thing that matters to me over here. You cannot trust both at the same time. The question is, what do we treasure? Where do we put our hope? What makes you feel secure? What is it that you think, if I only have that, I'll be happy? If only that occurs in my life, I'll be happy. If only, the if onlys of our lives, that's where our hearts are. You pick the wrong God, we invest our hearts in the wrong God, and the result is we end up with worry. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Therefore connects to what's being said before. Sinclair Ferguson said this, wrong priorities breed anxious hearts. That's the connection between the first and the second sections. Wrong priorities breed anxious hearts. Root your heart in things that are passing and are temporal and you are guaranteed worry. Root your heart in what you can accomplish and your self-sufficiency and you are guaranteed anxiety. Never fails. But root your heart in what is eternal and the one who is eternal and the one who is all glorious and all powerful and all loving. Root your heart in the Father who knows and sees and cares. And even in the most difficult times, we can know a peace in our soul. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. The NIV translates this, therefore I tell you, do not worry. It doesn't say anxious or anxious thoughts. It says worry. Anxious or anxious thoughts is a fine translation. Um, It's a fine translation, but culturally it can have a bit of a different sense than worry. So I'm going to use the word worry. Anxiety is a word that's used at points um, as even a clinical diagnosis um, for folks. And that's not what I'm talking about. Do I think it's possible to um, physiologically have issues or predisposition that leads one to experience perhaps more anxiety than someone else? Yes, I believe that's possible. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a disorder. So I'm going to use the word worry because everybody can relate to worry. Everyone can relate to worry. We all worry. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our spouses. We worry about not having a spouse. We worry about our children. We worry about not having children. We worry about our work. We worry about our culture. We worry about our society, bigger things. We worry about our future. We worry about our relationships. We worry about our safety. We worry about our stuff and things as well. We worry about big things. We worry about little things. No one is unfamiliar with worry, including Jesus. He didn't worry himself, but he understands worry, and he has an opinion, an authoritative opinion about worry, and his opinion is don't do it. 
I tell you, do, he says, verse 25, do not be anxious. So here's the first point. I want you to listen to it. I want you to stick with me on it for just a minute because it may strike you as a bit unusual. Worry is wrong. Worry is sinful. That's the first point. Worry is wrong. Now, Jesus is not advocating an uncaring sort of apathetic attitude like, I don't care, whatever. He's not advocating that kind of lifestyle where you have no concern in anybody. You don't show any concern for anybody. It's, I don't care. He's not talking about that kind of I don't care attitude. As a matter of fact, if you love a person, you will have concerns. You'll have concerns for them. You have concerns for your family, your coworkers, concerns for people in the church. Matter Part of loving someone is having a concern for their well-being. Jesus is not saying don't have a concern for anybody. Jesus is saying don't worry. And he forbids it three times in the passage, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry, NIV. Uh, Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious or do not worry. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious. These are imperatives. These are commands. This is Jesus saying this is a forbidden activity. Jesus is saying, here's a line, and if you cross the line, you are transgressing. You are sinning is the word. Do not. It is a command. It is a command because worry for the believer, for the child of God, is actually an offense to God. Why is it an offense to God? Because it's in essence saying, God, you tell me in your word that you're one way, that you're trustworthy, but I'm going to live with a mindset that you're not trustworthy. You say that you're good, but I'm acting like you are not good. You say that you will take care of me, but I'm mulling over in my mind worst case scenarios 24-7, which say you are absent and you are unfaithful. And that's, that's the reality is this, that distrust of God is as bad as disobedience to God. As a matter of fact, they're really the same. Distrust is disobedience. And one of the challenges about this is for most of us, worry is just a stealth sin. By stealth, it's hidden. We don't even think about it. Other sins are not stealth sins. Like, for instance, anger. If I get angry, I know about it like right away. So, so do those who are around me. They know about it right away. There goes dad. You know, people know right away. I feel like in my neck, I feel this pressure. Like, I don't know, my blood pressure or something like that. And by God's grace, hopefully I recognize that and repent and ask forgiveness if I've said something unkind to somebody. So I can get angry and I can be aware of it in, I don't know, three to five seconds. But I can worry for hours. I can worry for days without noticing it as wrong. I say, I just feel pressure. I'm just sort of stressed out. I'm just distracted. I'm just, you know, I don't know, I'm just preoccupied. But the reality is, running in the back of my mind is this active distrust of God. I may be preoccupied. That may be true. I'm preoccupied with myself. And with my ability to take care of my own life, as opposed to being preoccupied with my Father who is in heaven. I'm putting my trust somewhere else, and my idol isn't delivering for me. Now, this talk about worry is sin, worry is forbidden, worry is offensive to God, I find this so encouraging. 
it's not condemning at all. It's not meant to be condemning at all. It is so encouraging. Because if worry is just part of my natural temperament, then I'm stuck with it. If that's all worry is, like, I don't know, mama was a worrier, grandmama was a worrier, her mama before her was a we're all just worriers, then that's who I am. I'm, I'm stuck with just being a worrier. Some people talk about, like, certain characteristics like this, this part of their, uh, I don't know, part of their, um, their, their genetic predisposition or part of their heritage. Somebody will say something like, well, I'm Irish, and you know how Irish people, we all worry. Really? I, I, I didn't know that was like, in de- like that was characteristic of the Irish more than anyone else. I'm Latino. Latinos, man, we just worry. I, I don't think it matters if you're Irish or if you are Latino. It doesn't matter how you were brought. It's not like my background forced me to be a worry. Because if it did, God doesn't want to change you from being Irish or Latino. God loves that you're Irish or Latino. He created you that way. And there's wonders of your culture that we celebrate and are grateful for. But he's not going to change that. He's not going to go back and rewrite your entire upbringing. He's not going to go back and change mama and mama before her. Mama is mama. Okay? So if you say, that's why I worry, there's no hope for change. But if worry is, in fact, an issue of distrust in the Lord, if it's an issue of sin, then Jesus came to push that darkness back. Jesus came not to deliver you from your nationality or even your temperament. Oftentimes, when you become a Christian, much of your personality stays the same. Your temperament, like if you're introverted before conversion, it's very likely that after conversion, you're still introverted. God doesn't rewire everything of your personality. So if it's your temperament and you're converted, then you're just a Christian that just starts worrying about new stuff that you didn't even have to worry about before. But if it's an area of sin, Jesus shed his blood. He came up out of the grave. He rose from the dead to eradicate that darkness, to shine light on that darkness, and to give you reason to trust, to pull you out of the prison of worry and fear and anxiety, to release you from the captivity of fretting and bring you into the glory and the wonder and the peace of knowing a father that cares for you. That's why the language of worry and sin is very hopeful to me and glorious and wonderful because there's freedom in Jesus from it. Jesus gives us reason to trust him next in the passage. So worry is wrong. That's the first point. The second point is, uh, well, hold on. Yeah, the second point. The second point is how to battle your worry. So worry is wrong. Now I'm going to talk about how to battle your worry. And there's five responses in this text about how to battle worry. Here's the first tool or the first weapon battling worry. Believe that you matter to your father. That's the first one. Believe that God cares. That would be another way to say it. Believe that God cares. He starts by saying, verse 25, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he says, no need to worry, just look at the birds. You probably didn't see that one coming. I didn't. Look at the birds. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So he said, don't worry about your life. 
And here's an illustration. I want you to look at the birds and realize that the birds do not participate in the agricultural process. Birds do not get out with their little, uh, you know, with their uh, little seeds and plant seeds in rows. They don't plow their little birdie plows down the road. They don't harvest a crop. They don't store it in birdie barns so they have enough for the winter saved up. They don't do any of that stuff. God takes care of them. God feeds the birds. I mean, they find stuff to eat, but God provides all of that. There's not a big problem with starvation for the birds. They are taken care of. God takes care of them. So pay attention to them. And he says this, are you not more valuable than they? Verse 26, are you not more valuable than they? And I love the language. Notice the language. They don't, you know, sow, reap, gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Your father takes care of the birds. He is the creator of the birds. He is the sustainer of the birds. But he is your father. God cares about you more than birds. And they're not missing meals. And so he uses this illustration, Jesus says, to stop and look and notice and take notice and realize that God cares for you. I find it too easy to brush over this charge to look at the birds. It's just easy for me to forget about that and say, okay, that's a nice, I mean, I'm respectful, it's God's word, so that's a nice illustration. I I, want to embrace it, but it's easy for me just to move over that. And I think there's a sub point here that's very important for us to think about. God has filled the world with evidences of his activity. God has filled the world with evidence that he is faithful, that he cares, that he cares for birds. How much more does he care for us? But we rarely notice that stuff. One of the problems with living in a busy world, with calendars packed with activities all the time, one of the problems is that we never stop, we never slow down to just pay attention to the world around us. And notice what God's doing. We've got to get off to the next appointment. We're already 15 minutes late for soccer practice. Come on, let's move. Let's go. Let's go. We're going to be. That's how we live our lives. It's some kind of frantic pace that nobody got the time to leisurely take a stroll, look at the birds, and contemplate God's care for the birds. And make a connection connecting the dots to God's care for us. None of us have time for that because we are so busy. And I just find it amazing that God had to stop and tell first century peasant farmers in Palestine to just look up at the birds. People with no electricity, no internet, no Facebook, no Netflix, no commute to work. They have nothing. They have nothing. And he says, hey guys, you're doing nothing, but could you, well, they're farming, but you don't have all the distractions that they're going to have like 2,000 years from now, but could you go ahead and just look at the birds? What does that say to us? They lived among the birds. <laughs> what does that say? Realize that God cares for us by stopping and looking at his activity all around. The lilies prove the same point, verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not working. The lilies aren't working and sewing uh, amazing clothing. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
Solomon was notorious for being sort of the wealthiest man ever, uh, the most indulgent guy uh, in the history of the world. No doubt there would for sure be a reality TV show about Solomon if he was alive today. Everybody would want to gawk at his excess. And so what he's saying is you take the guy who had the most excess, who had the most stuff, uh, you know, between wives and concubines. I forget the number. We went through Ecclesiastes. He's like 900 so before he put an outfit, he had to get like 900 opinions on it before he says, how does this look on me? So, uh, so this is Solomon. And he says, Solomon had everything. And look at the lilies. He can't compare. Not even a field of lilies. It says in verse 29, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You pick one flower and it blows away your richest guy with the best clothing that anyone's ever had. One flower. He says in verse 30, if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and this is the comparison, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What's he saying? He's talking about wildflowers here, probably. They would grow, they would bloom, they would die, and then they would gather the dead flowers and use them for like kindling or something to burn in their, uh, for cooking purposes. So he's saying, you know, there are flowers that live a day, and then you just burn them up while you cook. If God makes them more beautiful than any human could create clothing to attire himself or herself, God is, you're way more valuable than those flowers. And look what he's done for them. What's he going to do for you? God is going to provide for you. And when we don't look around at life and look for God's activity and, and, and sort of have an integrated vision of life, where we say, God is active all around me. Let, me. let me look, not for his absence. Let me look for his presence and articulate where I see his presence and put my trust in the God who is present all around me. When we don't do that, like in this case, birds and flowers, Jesus says, we are of little faith. Oh, you little faithers. You're just not looking at what I'm doing all around you. For me, it would be forgetting not only what's all around me because I'm running from here to there, but it would be just forgetting my own life. I got five decades of test, five plus, five decades of testimony of God's faithfulness in my life and in my family and his goodness. He's always provided. He's always been good. He's always been there. But we forget that. We need an integrated view of life where we're looking all around. And when we see God's activity in our story and in the world around us, it deepens our confidence in him. So believe that God cares for you. That was the first idea. The second one is know that worry is a waste. We'll be brief on these other ones. Number uh, Verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? He's saying worry doesn't work. It doesn't produce. It has no power. So you can't add, let's say you live, uh, average lifespan's upper 70s, 80 years. Let's say you live 80 years. Worry won't add an hour to your 80 years. Now, Jesus isn't just saying hey, it doesn't work, so don't do it, worry. He's saying, he's showing us that anxiety, anxious thoughts are there foolish. Not only is it wrong, but it's powerless to give yourself to the energy of mulling over and meditating upon and running worst-case scenarios through your mind. It's, it's a waste to do that when that can't produce even an hour of your life. 
Quite the contrary, it can take away years from your life, worry and anxiety can. Won't add an hour, but could cut your life short because of various diseases that can be brought on by worry. Your life is in the Father's hands. You won't be given one more heartbeat than God has already ordained for you. Don't be anxious about what may happen. Rather, trust the God who controls what happens. Because worrying about what may happen produces nothing. Theologian, the the well-known theologian Mark Twain once wrote, that was a joke, I don't think he's a theologian, but uh, he said, I am an old man and I've known a great many troubles but most of them never happened. We carry so many worries that never happen. Worry is a waste. God cares for you. Number two, worry is a waste. Number three, remember your father knows your needs. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Yeah, God knows that you need basic provisions, and then some to live. Uh, This is what the Gentiles worry about. Now, he's not making a racial statement, Jew versus Gentile. A Gentile is a description here of an unbeliever. It's someone who's not in the covenant family of God as a Jew at this point in salvation history. So he's saying that Gentiles live, they're anxious about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, because they have no one to depend on but themselves. So anxiety and worry and fear is a logical That's logical for someone who has no God to provide for them. If God doesn't exist, then you must trust in yourself. You must produce for yourself. You must fully rely upon yourself to get what you need. So it would make tons of sense to be fretful about your life if your life is not in the hands of God. But he's saying, as a Christian, you must believe that the Father cares for you. This is what the Gentiles worry about. He's making a distinction. He's saying one primary distinction between believer and unbeliever is worry. Worry differentiates the Christian from the person who does not know God as Father. We have a loving Father who knows what we need. We don't have to chase it around in a panic. He knows. You know, I was thinking, I think we oftentimes mislabel sins. We like, well, here's the really bad sin. We think these are really bad, and these we don't think are bad, and these we don't even think are, like worry. You know, I was thinking about this. I I think that perhaps there's no more pagan moment in my life than when I'm worrying because it is functional atheism. It is saying, Yes, I went to church and sang all those songs about Jesus as my living hope. It says, I read my Bible this morning, and I believe in God, but I'm going to spend my entire day worrying. In the background of my life today, running as the backdrop of my life is going to be this sort of low-grade fretting and worrying all day, like God doesn't exist, like God doesn't know. If God only knew what I'm facing, he knows. That's the purpose of the text. If God only knew... If God would only help, he will help. He has helped. Look around. He is alive. That's what he's saying to us. He is present as Father. And when we know that, when we're aware of our needs, uh, he's aware of our needs before we, we even ask, it 
puts in our heart this sense of his care. And so we just want to remember, God, you are alive and you are with me. That's number three. Remember, your father knows your needs. Believe you matter to your father. Know that worry is a waste. Remember your father knows your needs. Fourth, seek the kingdom. This is what he says in verse 33. This could be obviously unpacked as a whole sermon. So I'm going to give it two minutes. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I have come and I'm inaugurating the kingdom. The kingdom, the rule and reign of God is breaking into the here and now in a new way. It has already arrived in Jesus. It is not fully arrived until his return. So it's already here, but not yet in its fullness. But we live in the times of the kingdom rule and reign. And God is busy redeeming and rescuing, pushing back darkness, restoring what has been lost by humanity's sin and rebellion, redeeming a people for himself, and then putting a longing waiting in our heart when for the day he will return and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And so he is in this process right now. So seek the kingdom. From the very beginning, the kingdom has been counterintuitive. From chapter 5, the beginning of the sermon, he says, this is what life in the kingdom is like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see their need for God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. The meek, I thought it was the assertive that will inherit the earth. I thought it was those who trample upon others that will inherit the earth. Jesus says the meek, those who trust God will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. I thought blessed are those who take no prisoners, who, who are, you know, aggressively rule and reign. No, he says blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. He says blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil about you. This is what he's saying. This is the exact opposite of what any of us expect. Who would want to sign up for that? But he says, in that is the kingdom. This is what life is going to be like. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to work through you. And as you experience challenges in life, I'm going to shine through you. And you corporately are going to be a city set on a hill. You individually are going to be light to the world of darkness. That is the kingdom. And then he begins to show us how the kingdom rule and reign works out in our life. And this is what he's saying. This is how it works out in worry. That in worry, you realize God is on the throne. God is ruling and reigning in my life. And he's going to use all these experiences, even bad ones like persecution, even bad ones like being sinned against because I have to show mercy to someone else, even bad ones that cause me to have to be a peacemaker. God's going to use all that negative stuff to work his character in me, to draw me closer to him, to knit me together with his people, to refine and purify me, to allow me to be like Jesus who drew attention to his father amidst his suffering. So don't worry, God is at work, is what he's saying. Seek the kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Now, righteousness is a term we could develop out in a lot of ways, but I just want to highlight this biblical truth that is central. This is foundational to any language of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift that Jesus provides. Righteousness is not you doing enough good to serve God. It is through faith in his death and resurrection God forgives you, unites you to Christ, and gives you his righteousness. He declares you righteous. So you're standing before God. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're investigating the faith, don't mishear me today. You can't stop worrying. 
well, that won't happen anyway, but you can't stop worrying 100% and now make yourself right with God. No, worry is distrust of God. You have to bring your distrust, your, your functional atheism, you're denying the goodness of God. You're denying the faithfulness of God. You have to bring that to him and ask his forgiveness. We come to Jesus. He died for our sins. He rose for our sins. And he gives us the gift of righteousness. And when we remember what he did for us on the cross, it reminds us that he'll take care of everything else. This is one way we seek his righteousness. We daily remind ourselves of what he has provided for us and the gift of his righteousness to us. And once we're secure in that righteousness, as we're secure in that righteousness, then we more and more begin to live that righteousness out in our daily life. But it's something that's, first of all, declared over us. First of all, something that is gifted to us. And when we remember that, we find rest. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what he said. If God loves you so much that he became a man, and as a man, Jesus, the innocent man, he died for your sins. He was punished for what you've done and for what you failed to do. Jesus was nailed to a cross, and that was not the greatest part of the suffering. The greatest part was that your sins were put upon him and God the Father judged you by pouring out his judgment, his wrath upon his own son such that the sky becomes dark, the Father turns from his son. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is enduring the punishment for our sins. If God went through all of that, if he endured that hellish attack, that indescribable suffering, then will he make sure you got dinner tonight? Will he provide clothing? Will he put a roof over your head? He's done what was impossible for you to do for yourself. He has gone to the greatest length imaginable to demonstrate his love to rescue you in the cross. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up, Will he not graciously give us all things? He has showered us with grace. So look at the birds. Yes, Jesus says to. Look at the flowers. Yes, Jesus says to. But ultimately, look to the Savior on the cross and look to an empty tomb because it is the constant reminder that he will take care of you. The Father has given everything for you. It's a sign of his love. Seek his righteousness. I love that old song, which really helps us see this. When we look to Jesus, that old song, the little chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When you look to Christ, all that stuff, it, it, it just fades under his glory. Last point, we're done. Seek his kingdoms, number four. Number five, live in today. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. <laughs> Jesus is so real. He's saying, hey, you guys are all worried about tomorrow and next year. 
you've got enough problems today. Your life is already really screwed up today. And you're, th- that's not Jesus' language, that's mine. But, but you're worried about what's going to happen next week? Like, look what's on your plate. You've got enough to deal with today. What he's saying is every day has its problems, and Jesus promises to be with you today. Each day has enough problems, problems of its own. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Okay, quit, quit worrying about what's coming. Worst case scenario, plotting and planning. Well, what if she doesn't? And what if they do? And this doesn't come through? And what if I fail to? And what if I forget? Hey, forget. Forget all that. Look at today. Jesus only promises grace for today. He don't want you worrying about tomorrow. He wants you to receive his presence and his help today. When you get to that day, you will have a grace coupon for that day that you can cash in on that day not today this is the second time I'm using a Costco illustration in this series I'll note that but Costco sends out these coupon books which inspire my coveting and and greed because I don't need one box of pop-tarts I need 52 a box of pop-tarts and so anyway they send out these coupon books but they're dated so you'll get one like right now and it'll say these coupons can only be used February 1st through, say, February 13th. And I'm looking, I want that. This is terrible marketing because I want this right now. I'm ready to get in the car and go buy 52 boxes of pop tarts right now. But I can't until February, and I'm going to forget about it and think better about then and go, that's not really healthy anyway, and not even buy them. But right now I would do it. I can't, I can't use the coupon until that day. And then it will say, these coupons do for February 14th through the 28th. And you can only cash it in on that day day that those days on the calendar and that's kind of how this works you got these coupons of grace but just don't worry about that just look at what do we got for today it's only good for that day each day has enough trouble of its own when you get to that day's trouble God's already there he already sees he already cares he'll be more than enough and so on that day if you do lose your job in September of 2019 he's already there waiting for you to care for you and help you. And if you do lose a loved one who dies in 2021, he's already there. And if you get a diagnosis of terminal cancer in 2028, he knows that, he sees that, he's already there. And he will be there will be enough grace on that day. That's the testimony that I've experienced pastorally time and time again when I've been with people who've had terrible things happen. They've lost a loved one. They've gotten a scary diagnosis. And, uh, and I've often heard this. I've heard something like this. You know what? I, I could never imagine being in this situation. And it's bad. And it hurts. But I feel like God is with me. I can relate to that. I've had stuff happen in my life and in my family that if you told me 10 years ago, this is going to happen, and wrote me a script... I'd just go, Jesus, please come before then and rescue me because I do not want that to happen. But when I've experienced it and hit those things, which were surprises to me, but not to God, my experience has been, yeah, this is really bad, but God is with me. And that's what Jesus says. The Father is here to care for you today, right now. And when you get to that day, there'll be enough trouble there. I mean, there's enough trouble today. God will be there to care for you. Live in today. Don't worry about tomorrow. So how do you battle your worry? Believe that you matter to God. Know that worry is a waste. Remember the Father knows your needs. 
seek his kingdom, live in today. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.